0: Um <clears throat> hello. Uh today's um uh a day when we get to talk about projects. Uh I wanted to introduce it by connecting a bit to last week and um start by showing you this little video that Dean made with me just last week. Um Can we hit the lights down so it looks a little better? And why aren't we getting sound here? These now, wait a here we go.
1: students okay, one, of the, <laughs> one of the students um, said that the ambiguity in Jonathan's podcast was potentially a weak point, but I thought that the ambiguity was sort of its strong point in that it really gets people wondering, well what's this person actually saying? They have something interesting to say, but I don't know what it is and so I see the potential for Jonathan to just to, to move on that and to say, well you know, here's a little bit more of what I'm saying, what do you think? you know, feed me and I'll feed you more of what I think. Um, so that's that's what I think you guys should look at today. Uh, there's lots of other interesting stuff, but that was what I found the most interesting.
0: All right, so it's not much, but it's a start. And the idea of Dean, in a sense, being the host of, What we do out to an audience that looks at these videos seems like a nice, sensible thing. And uh, I'm delighted to have that continue. I would even like to carry through with the thought of, uh, after class, if it's possible, Dean catching some of you for more personal exchange. Uh, I think that um, there's potential for expanding the way in which we are relating to our audience. All right, then, secondly, I wanted to show you another little piece of video that um, was stimulated by our class last week. Uh, In particular, the part of our class that was talking about the at-large audience and the questions of whether there was something valuable in our class being made available to outside audience. And, in fact, that class is watched by an outside audience with people looking at it, seeing whether we have, in fact, connected with empathic argument as far as they're concerned and um, so this, this came in uh, as a response to the video that we put up here's somebody out there who's made a video coming back to us and uh, Rebecca tells me she is familiar with this person from the second life environment no, from just the at large not, not the person, oh interesting alright, so I don't know exactly who this person is <laughs> I see. All right, so take a look at this guy. Now, I'm going to probably not play all of this. It's five minutes long, but...
2: I'd like to use the technology and take this opportunity to say that I've been, in a sense, participating in your class at a distance, and I appreciate this opportunity. My name is Bruce Eubauer. I realize that You've chosen to be in this class and for the class to be taught in a way that accommodates others, and I, for one, appreciate that. I know that it's not natural to be passing microphones around and to have cameras turned in your direction every time you speak in a usual classroom. I was particularly interested in the uh, discussion recently about... um, the benefits and the, um, the the fact that, you know, what you are doing is a contribution to a larger community, which might carry some expense to those who are in the immediate experience and how, you know, how that works out. What I did not hear was an acknowledgement of the fact that we in the larger community might be able to contribute directly to the quality of what you are experiencing. And that what the way you are experiencing your class may be having direct benefits to you that may not be apparent at face value. You are speaking to the court of public opinion, having made your thoughts and your manner of expression available to people all over the world, potentially. You know, How could you now be intimidated by any court, any other court, or any other judge for that matter? I suspect that the class is different because of people like me sometimes in better ways, and that I and others may be in a sense making a contribution to to your educational experience. I would hope so. You are certainly making a contribution to my educational experiences, and I'm grateful for that. If I may, let me address for the moment this question of empathic argument. That is a new concept to me, and I've been thinking about it. And I'm interested to know how you understand the value of it. Do you think the people who will come looking for you as lawyers, as Harvard graduates, will have empathy high on their list of qualities they are looking for? Did President Clinton um, gain stature by making a statement such as, I feel your pain? I personally believe in the importance and the power, if you will, of empathy and empathic argument. But I'm wondering how you perceive it. Is it... Something that you think ultimately will serve the interests of your clients, as you represent them before others, is it a is,
3: is its effect primarily upon the quote unquote opponent,
2: or is its effect primarily on you as the one who practices empathic argument? It causes you envy. To have to listen more carefully to others that we engage with in order to be empathic in our approach. But is our intent, if we do this, to find a better solution? Or is it to kind of manipulate the situation and cause the other to buy into our position? and what the persons or the institution that we represents wants as an outcome. I appreciate this opportunity and hope that by use of YouTube and and such technology to be able to more fully participate in what you're doing. And perhaps others will will do so also, in which case you can begin to deal with the the, uh, questions involving the degree to which an educational experience can scale. Thank you again. All right.
0: So So I found this very interesting in a number of respects. First, I found it very interesting just the fact of it, the idea of somebody out there coming back to us and actually speaking to us and speaking very directly to us. I mean, I really felt him speaking to me and I'm sure that in many ways, you could feel him speaking to you. Secondly, I was very interested in what he was saying about the usefulness of the at-large audience to us. And I recall saying to you at the beginning of the last class that I gave myself a B-, and I went through three of my ticks. But the fourth one is that Ann Margley's left some arguments on the said which she voiced to me after class and by far the most powerful argument to me was her witness her testimony that the open courseware project at MIT which in a sense is opening MIT to the net had had a tremendously beneficial effect inside MIT on the quality of the education that's being offered there. And she pointed to two features that seem completely realistic and very persuasive. Uh, The first was that with 80% of the faculty there choosing voluntarily to put their material out to the net, that actually involved a considerable Improvement, an incentive to improve the materials on the part of the faculty. They were going public in a way they hadn't gone before, and they wanted them to be good, and they improved it. Secondly, they improved the actual presentation of their materials, according to Anne, whereas MIT used to be in many ways characterized by the faculty member with a piece of chalk in hand, face to the blackboard, back to the class, the whole way in which the faculty has thought about themselves in the classroom environment has been positively affected by the idea that there is a broader audience that's interested and so, when you put that together with what she did say, which is that a very large percentage of the usage of the open material that's made available in MIT is, is, is specifically by MIT students who are there and by MIT students who are thinking of coming there, potential MIT students, so that it becomes a recruiting device as well as a a statement about where the school is, it uh, seemed like a, a very powerful set of arguments as to the value to the institution and to the people in it. And I felt that this gentleman here was in some way saying the same thing to us. It's, it's like um, there's, there's pluses in it. Can I just
4: add to it a little bit... Bruce um, emailed me about this video when he made it, and in his email he said something that he doesn't actually say on the um, videotape, which was that he felt that many of you were uh, making – taking a first step into the court of public opinion as – Personalities right now that when you take the microphone and you speak in class he's come to know some of you and say oh i love what that person says he always has great comments and you know things like that so it's like you're already it's not just you know oh we're our class is out there but we as individuals are in a certain sense out there and representing ourselves uh, about these different ideas so that's a you know potentially positive, potentially uncomfortable, but certainly interesting state of affairs for us to consider.
0: And I actually loved what he said about the idea that if you have a sense of yourself as a speaker in the court of public opinion and get comfortable with it, there's no court that should ever intimidate you again. It's really a very direct statement of the value of the enterprise. But what about his questions? When you, when you think about empathic argument, to the extent that we've gotten a handle on it, to the extent that you've gotten a handle on it, do you see it as something that will be a plus to your clients? Do you see ways in which you would be able to use it in a positive sense? I'd be curious as to...
3: Christina, you want to take a shot?
0: Right
3: Empathic argument is really like... I, I guess maybe if I were representing a client, it wouldn't be the best thing to use if I just wanted to win a case because I feel like it really takes into consideration everything else. And I've found that having a, like a high degree of empathy is really bad for winning arguments because you start to see where the other person is coming from and then you have to readjust everything. And then like, you can't just stick with, you know, the view that you were trying to take. But I do think that it brings you closer to kind of like a much better solution for everyone involved, uh, whether or not that's beneficial in an economic sense to your clients. I don't know, but I I think it's a very, very good tool for at least debates and discussions.
0: Let me just get it straight there, Christina. You're, you think it wouldn't help you because...
3: I think re- it wouldn't help you. I don't think it'll always help you win cases.
0: And the reason it won't help you win a case is because you're going to have to understand the other side.
3: No, because you have to... Because once you see where the other side is coming from, you might find yourself agreeing with them and not with your original view that you were supposed to take. That you, makes might get sense. Your,
0: you might get persuaded yourself to the other side. Yeah, Absolutely.
5: Follow-on call or different? Um. Yeah. It's in a way, it's it's a follow-on. I think it depends on whether you want to, to what degree you want to utilize an empathic argument can sometimes depend on what your client wants. Um, In some degrees, I think that the system is just set up in a way where if you go too far with an empathic argument, I think that you do decrease your chance of winning the case in a certain sense. But if your client just wants – if your client wants the judgment, then you need to do what you need to do to, get, to try to secure that judgment for your client. If your client just wants to get their story out there and they want to represent something to the world, they want to know that they've been wrong. That they want to know what – people to know what they've been through, regardless of whether, you know, they get a certain verdict in a case or judgment in a case. Then that's something that's a little different and aside from just your normal small sphere of, you know, is it in their favor or against their – favor um, in a court setting. Say Uh, your name. Josh. Josh. I think I agree
6: with that, and I agree with Christina also, because the way we've defined empathic argument in this class uh, is really based on trying to convince the other side uh, of your position, whereas in the courtroom, I think it depends the degree to which the jury or the judge is likely to empathize with the other side, because you're not really trying to convince your adversary. You're just trying to convince this third-party decision-maker to side with you, and they may have a different perspective on the issue. So you don't really need to empathize with the other side necessarily uh, in order to win over the jury.
0: Richard.
7: I, I think that's really a, a, a big and sort of important point here as far as where empathy is going to show up, where it's going to be of use to us, um, as far as who, with whom you're, emph- you're empathizing. Um, so and we've talked a lot about empathizing with the other side because it's the, the other side that you would sort of naturally be di- disinclined to empathize with. Um, but, obviously, you have to have empathy with your client. You have to really understand where your client is coming from. You probably, in order to convince judges and juries, want to have some empathy with them as well. You know, what's going to move them? What's What are their decision-making processes, which are very different. I mean, juries are uh, groups of, you know, your client's peers, and, you know, you want to think of, think of them that way. Judges, on the other hand, you're thinking about stuff like precedent and stuff. I mean, that's what's supposed to move them to some extent. So empathy is sort of, you know, it's all over the place as far as... Knowing what's going to move the different parties in any, in any dispute, not just you and your adversary. So I think it is useful in a lot of different ways.
0: Pass down call. Cool. <laughs> is it going to do it? Oh, sorry.
8: I think everything that's been said so far is correct. I, I will say this, though. I think um, most litigators, and I've, you know, whether it was the Ames competition or working this summer or whatever. I'm usually completely 100% convinced of whatever side I'm on, you know, no matter how weak it is. For, for whatever reason, it's just we're clearly we're right. And I think uh, I think litigators you,
0: you, you really got the spirit, you know. It's like you
8: give me a side, I'm completely convinced. Right, and how could anybody disagree? Not, you know. But it, but anyways, and I think um, so I think it's good for litigators particularly to put themselves in the shoes of their opponents. And if they don't, they're more likely to simply just sort of out of hand dismiss arguments so well clearly that's not right and our side's right so i think from that point of view if you can empathize empathize with your opponent you don't necessarily care whether they agree with you but it does give you the tools that you know now okay well this argument is pretty good i really have to hammer this one you know in front of the court so i think that's the most valuable point I, i agree i mean for me it's just all about winning so i think it's a tool that can help you win
5: Um, I also tend to think that, uh, this is kind of going along with what I said before, but kind of an extension, um, that legal reasoning, especially in an academic setting, uh, more so than maybe a courtroom, I feel like it's it's primarily based on hollow and neutral reasoning. That's what the field kind of seems to pride itself on, more so than bringing any kind of emotion or personal views into play so much. Um, and I think that, that empathy, what re- empathy really is is capturing emotions. Um, and I don't know how far and to what degree that fits into to what you're trying to do in a legal realm. I, I, do, I definitely do think it has a place. But I think that sometimes people can even view it as detracting from the argument that you're trying to make. You know, you're, you're, you're a little too human. You're a little too emotional as opposed to
0: rational. Did I hear you say hollow and neutral Reasoning? Yeah. Hollow reasoning? Say more, well, about, nah. say more about how legal reasoning is hollow.
5: Maybe that's a bad way to describe it. I just dug myself in a hole. Um, I'm in hollow in a sense of...
0: Lacking emotion.
5: Lacking emotion, yeah. Lacking... Um,
0: it's pure rationality stuff. at work. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
9: Um, I was going to say that I think that empathy really works when you're dealing with um, criminal matters, especially when you're plea bargaining, which I realize that plea bargaining is more common than jury trials and everything in day-to-day criminal court. And so you really have to empathize with the other side, and see, especially when it's the prosecution, and see what they want and see how you can get what's best for your client. And if you just say what you want and just what your client wants, you're not going to get that. You have to definitely empathize with them and and try to um, persuade them um, that they should do what's best for both of for both you and your, your both the client and the state.
10: Uh-huh. It sounds like a lot of people are worried that being empathic will somehow affect us personally as the empathic argumenter that we're worried that we're going to be persuaded or we're going to be weakened somehow and we're going to change our minds and that somehow will be bad for our clients but let me suggest on the other side that showing the neutral arbitrator the judge or the jury that we're open to listening to the other side that we're open to really caring about the other person and finding out about the whole story lends credibility to us in a certain sense. It shows that we care about the truth, we care about telling the whole truth, and still, you know, we believe strongly our own position, and therefore, you know, it's sort of like, I I heard this uh, saying somewhere, uh, I don't know who said it first, but would you rather have the most brilliant Harvard lawyer, logician, argue your case, or would you have Abraham Lincoln do it? And I think I'd have Abraham Lincoln do it because people think he's credible. People think he tells the truth.
0: And you think Abe Lincoln wouldn't be the top of his Harvard class?
10: I I think that's possible. I, 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 I can't say that for sure. It depends on how professors like you and other professors at Harvard decide to grade. so we're
11: talking about argument in terms of convincing a judge or a jury and often too in terms of some neutral principles. Oops, uh, sorry. <laughs> arguing to puppies. Um, but but it seems to me that the way i'm seeing it is that is empathic argument is not and Brett was saying he wants to win and and so and there's there's something to be lost if you if you just argue um, convinced of your side and don't see the other side. And i think i think for me what an empathic argument does is just to let me make a connection with the other person and we don't we haven't focused enough i don't think on that on that you actually can become friends with the person you argue against i mean like the majority of cases don't end up being resolved by anyone but the two parties that are arguing right so in the end it's just a negotiation and you can call it litigation but it's really a a sort of complex agreement process and the more you can empathize the more you have like you were just saying credibility with the other side to for them to sort of empathize with you, and, and, and you're sort of slowly wiggling towards each other, where you can get to a position you're both happy with.
0: Well, let me uh, offer a few reactions. First, the idea that law is hollow, neutral, somehow devoid of emotion, is just not my experience at all, at all any level, the only place where I've ever seen that even to be plausibly true, is in law school. <laughs> the only place where rationality is somehow elevated to the level of the mountain top, and the emotional is somehow felt to be... Beneath, and it's true. It, it's true. It's true in so many ways. I, I would say that one of the major educational experiences I had was in litigating the case that became a civil action. This was a, a large-scale civil tort action tried in a federal court, exceedingly intensely litigated on both sides. And the one lesson that I clearly took away from that is that you need to empathize with the judge. The judge is really a powerful character in the litigation arena. And when you think about empathizing with the judge, if your thought is somehow precedent, that you're going to empathize with the judge through precedent you're missing a major part of what's happening. Uh, so take this case that I was involved in. Uh, highly contentious, newspaper coverage, lots of money potentially at stake, terrific plaintiff's lawyer on one side, two major corporations on the other side, Beatrice Foods and Grace Big, big companies. And the judge, if you think of what a judge is, I mean, think of what a judge is. First of all, a judge is just like an ordinary person. Any one of you could easily be, and many of you will be, judges. So what special competence do you have to try um, a federal case, a big, press-intense, hotly-contested case, you actually are going to find yourself as a judge as like the director of somewhat free-form play that goes on in front of you. It's your courtroom. You manage it. You are in control. And if you want to empathize with the judge, start from that. Now, in fact, I would say we lost the Woburn case. It settled for some significant money, but nothing like the money that the plaintiff's lawyer wanted. And if I had to say one reason why we lost that case, it's because we didn't empathize with the judge. And in a lawyerly kind of way, I don't mean sloppy emotion, the judge had a problem managing this huge case. The way it starts out, there were two major defendants in this case. This is a case about contamination of an aquifer a water supply in Woburn, north of Boston here, with the accusation being that families whose water supply came from this aquifer had been blighted by leukemia, children dying of leukemia. And so there was a lawsuit that involved serious tort questions about whether, in fact, the defendants had polluted the aquifer and whether the stuff they polluted the aquifer with caused leukemia. these are two, two very substantial issues. The judge, when that case started, was excited about this case. He actually was quoted in the press of saying the damages in this case could be astronomical. Now just think of that from the plaintiff's lawyer's point of view. That's like, that's like Wow, you couldn't buy anything better than for a judge to say that. What could we have done that would have made the case simpler for the judge, more manageable for the judge, that would have empathized with the judge's problem of running this thing? Well, I'll tell you, A number one, we could have made it a simpler case the fact that there were two major corporations as defendants was a disaster. We could have settled with one of them and litigated against one of them. And if there was any move that lost that case for us, it was the fact that we didn't do that. I say we, I wasn't actually that wasn't my my part of it i actually came into the case in effect after that decision had gotten made but that was the key decision as a result of that decision that case was a bear to try and before the judge got through with that case he hated it it took too long it was too contentious it was messy it was difficult Whereas against one clean defendant, it would have been a much neater case. Easier to run, easier to understand. By the end of the case, he was our enemy. He was out to beat us, and he beat us. We beat ourselves by not understanding the problem from the judge's point of view. Just like you're not going to win with the prosecutor unless you can see it from the prosecutor's point of view. So, yes, absolutely. Then, if you drop down a level, if you think of the jury as your decision-maker, how do you empathize with the jury? That's the best thing you could do by way of empathizing with the jury in a courtroom. Well, think about what it is to be a juror. How many of you have been jurors? Yeah, Exactly. Well, what do you think the jury experience is? Richard, what do you think the jury experience is? Give them the mic there. I mean, basically, they
7: don't want to be there. Um, That's the first thing. And And there's a lot of getting shuffled around, and, you know, you're told to sit there quietly and pay attention to stuff that you don't understand. I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of frustration after a while on their part. I mean, that's, I think that's what you want to empathize with. You want to understand what's going on. Probably it's also a hope that there's some kind of, you know, that you can actually do some good, right? You can, you can appeal to that as well, I think.
0: They've probably sat there for more or less of a day, maybe longer, if it's a big case, longer, in this selection process. They are meant to be. They're on time. They're herded in and out as a group. They're meant to sit there mostly without notes, although some courts would permit it. So basically, you sit there with no distraction and you watch this thing go on in front of you. Now, if you've ever gone to a real courtroom, you know what goes on in the real courtroom is not typically as interesting as what you see on Law and Order. You know they they're not doing quick cuts. It's much more like watching grass grow. <laughs> What's more, whenever somebody makes an objection that needs to be discussed, what the judge will do is say approach the bench. And the jury then sits there for as long as it takes an argument, which goes on like this. You're bored to tears. And the longer the case goes on, the more bored you're going to get. In the Woburn case, for example, the case tried, for the better part of, I don't know, how many months did it go on? It went on for months. The judge had bifurcated the case. The judge had said, look, there's two big issues in this case. One is, did the defendants pollute the aquifer? And two, did the pollutants cause the leukemia? And so the judge said... Let's try the first issue first. So we'll have a trial first on whether the defendants polluted the aquifer. And then, if the jury finds they did, we'll go on and try the more difficult issue of whether the chemicals in the aquifer cause leukemia. Nobody knows what causes leukemia. It's going to be the statistical thing. That's where I was brought in. I was going to be like the evidence guy. So what happened on the trial of the first issue? On the trial of the first issue, the lawyer for the Beatrice Corporation, who was a guy named Jerry Fasher, taught trial practice here for many years, lawyer in town with Halen Doerr, he understood what was happening. And from the beginning, he dragged things out for as long as he could. He's the cross-examiner. In cross-examination, hey, just keep asking questions. Keep asking questions. Keep a- go for days. We'd put on a witness. We'd have him off the stand in three hours because we're trying to hurry it up. Jerry would have him on the stand for a week on the cross. And when it came to the closing on the first issue, Jerry was basically able to say to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, You've sat here now for many months, immersed in this issue. If you decide that my client polluted the aquifer, then you'll be back here Monday and we'll go on to the leukemia issue. Whereas if you decide that my client didn't, you can go home. Now that's a powerful argument. And it's got nothing to do with precedent. There's nothing hollow or neutral in that. All right, so that's the jury. Now you come down to the lawyers. You talk to lawyers, and most good litigators will tell you that their best clients come from the people they beat. Why is that? That's because the people they beat saw a good lawyer work extremely well. They saw the lawyer have an understanding of the environment and come to the conclusion, I'd like that guy. So this idea of empathy, I just, I've I've become a total believer in it as a matter of legal skill. I I told you at the outset, I'm just going to repeat it so that you, 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 you get it. I saw this, for the first time, really work in the Supreme Court of the United States. Used by Archibald Cox, who was the Solicitor General of the United States. And he would very typically stand up and start his case by stating the problem. Statement of the case. And I'd seen a lot of Supreme Court arguments as a clerk. And, you know, the bench is like split and you can almost predict where the questions are going to come from and all that sort of stuff. And when uh, somebody starts, the people who are against them are kind of leaning forward. They don't like speeches and so they'll shoot questions almost from the beginning. It's like a hot bench kind of situation. And what you could see happening when Archie started stating the case is he would state it so fairly to the other side that the people who were ready to ask him the question would hear their question in his statement. They didn't need to ask him the question. And so they literally, you could literally see them sitting back. You could see them begin to listen. They got curious about, oh, if the guy understands the problem this way, he actually understands it the way I understand it. Where is he going to go with it? How is he going to get from where he understands the problem and states the problem and where I understand it to the conclusion that he's advocating? And when he started advocating, they're listening. So that was just extremely effective. Then you come down to negotiation. The the single best statement that I've heard about negotiation in the form of advice to someone who's the negotiator is you want to be the piece at the table. You want to be the piece at the table. You want to be the most solid character in the room. You want to be the most embracing, understanding, thoughtful character in the room. The result of that is that the negotiation, instead of getting increasingly oppositional, And people getting dug in. Quite the opposite happens. People start to talk in much more direct ways. And the process of negotiation is much more fluid. The other thing that I would indicate that I would put in the category of empathy is humor. You think of it in a jury case. Anybody who can come up with anything that's a little amusing. Think of it as a law school class. You know, a a teacher who's able to say something amusing every once in a while. It's a big help in terms of your willingness to pay attention. uh, Same thing is true in negotiation. Same thing is true in the formal courtroom. It's just so far away from some kind of argument about precedence. I, I, I just don't think it's got much to do with it. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of this approach. I think it's a wonderful skill. And if you used it for nothing other than your personal relations, it would be fabulously useful. But when you see that actually it's really very much at the core of an awful lot of good lawyering, it's, it's, it's worth it. All right, now I wanted to mention something that's uh, happening Uh, I've uh, mentioned Fred Friendly Seminars to you on a couple of occasions. Uh, And I mentioned Fred Friendly Seminars last week, and Christina pointed out to me that I had my dates wrong. But I want to now assert that I have the dates right and uh, give you a heads-up on what I think is an interesting thing. Uh, Fred Friendly Seminars uh, is... Coming up uh, to Boston tomorrow night and f- recording uh, a seminar on issues that have to do in some sense with the internet security uh, and they 're doing it at the Museum of Science at seven, seven to ten p m doing a recording and uh, i 'm uh, hoping to meet with anybody who 's interested at the Berkman Center sometime around five o 'clock and Grab um, a bite at Harkness and then go down to the Science Museum and uh, just see this. And then on Wednesday morning, there's a breakfast at the faculty club to which I invite anybody that wants to come along. At which Ruth Friendly, who's Fred Friendly's widow, he died back in the early 90s and she's continued to more or less oversee the whole enterprise and a guy named Richard Kilberg who is the executive director of Fred Friendly Seminars will be present at the breakfast now a specific reason for mentioning this is, is Brianna, Brianna's not here at the moment but you recall her project has to do with laptops, Who? there's another laptop in here where's, right, good uh, and Part of my project discussion along that front has been the question, well, how to take this laptop idea and extend it somewhat? And it just happens that on December 7th in the Ames courtroom, we're going to do a Fred Friendly seminar. I'm going to have the pleasure of moderating it. And we are going to do it on a succession of the issues that we've been dealing with here in the class including the laptop issue uh, and we have a wonderful panel of people from the profession and academia and so forth and so the idea of using a format for producing an event that addresses an issue that you would like to see projected in a way that brings out both sides of it in a context in which people are talking and encouraged to talk empathically. That's what the Fred Friendly Seminar is basically about. Uh, And uh, so, in terms of your thinking, I would like to suggest tomorrow night, Wednesday breakfast, and then December 7th, uh, an Ames Courtroom event. And be thinking if, it's possible about your own projects as um, just uh, in a context of here's, here's, here's at least one way to try and get issues more articulated in an interesting way and um, end up and out. All right. Any questions? Any thoughts? All right. So project day today. Want to change the tape? Oh, all right. Change tape. Can you clap. Josh, you want to come down and now? What? How can we help you in terms of the screen and your project? Well, as far as visually,
12: it's, it's on a wiki, so people can here. Explain. There's like a little, um, outline wiki and I mean, people can just go onto that on their own computers if they want. Um, it's not, I can just give the, the, like uh, uh, address when the time comes. Um, I thought the first thing I would do is just explain the, the issue cause the, the wiki doesn't have any of the facts or anything. So I thought I'd just explain the issue, um, explain my connection to it and, uh, how the project came to be what it is, and then open up the wiki and, and get started talking about the arguments. Um, so the first thing I just want to say is that um, I find the empathic argument uh, skill very difficult. Um, really, it, it's tough. It's not instinctual. It's counterintuitive for me. So you kind know, the reason I was willing to go today is because I thought this would be a really good chance to get help from other people, you know, working through these things, because I I recognize it's a powerful tool, but it's, it's tough getting started. Um, so the issue I'm doing, there's this art teacher um, at Wilma Fisher Elementary School. Uh, it's in Frisco, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And uh, last April, she took like 90 fifth graders on a field trip to the Dallas Museum of Art. And uh, she previewed the route. She approved the work that was going to be shown. and while they were on the field trip through the museum, some kids kind of wandered off and saw a bunch of naughty statues and pictures. Um, there, on the, on the, the wiki that they 'll put up, there are the pictures of some of the statues that they might have seen. No one 's really sure exactly what they saw, but one of the statues in the museum involves a, 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 it's a Hindu statue of a fellow with a dragon 's head and a hundred hands having sex with a goddess. and you know so many people think inappropriate fare for a fifth grader, depending on your. So anyway, um, some kids go back and tell their. Wait, 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 wait! You
0: have a picture of this? Yes. (laughs) I want it. Come on, we gotta get it up. All right, all right. um, We gotta, we gotta know what we're talking about. (laughs) Here, can you? you... Oh yeah, sure.
12: Um, This is, this is the address.
0: You keep talking, and I'll get
12: it out. Okay. Um, so uh, some kids reported back to their parents that they had seen said works. Um, you know, the other ones were probably less scandalous, like a, a headless statue, ancient nude Greek, you know, male body. Um, anyway, so uh, in reaction, in response to this, the principal kind of calls Sidney McGee into her office, rebukes her, and then Sidney McGee is placed on administrative suspension with pay, And the school district announces it's not going to renew her contract, which is up at the end of the year. So she's functionally fired. I mean, she's still getting her paycheck, but she's not allowed to, like, interact with kids or teach a class or be at the school. Um, And this will pretty much end her career. She's been teaching art for 27 years. The kids love her. She's a beloved teacher. She's won awards. And now these kids have wandered off, seen some naughty statues on the field trip, and she's fired. The school is now backtracking a little bit, trying to say, well, she had other performance issues, and, you know, trying to sort of muddy, there you go, there's our, our dragon man and his, uh, his goddess. Um, yes. Uh, so anyway, um, but the, the basic story that, like, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and most media outlets and bloggers and message boards have accepted is that this is in reaction to the kids seeing the naked statues and some naked pictures, which... Um, these are, these are just taken off the Dallas Museum of Art's website, so there could be more, for all we know. Uh, heavens knows what material is traveling in these traveling exhibitions that come to town. So, um, this is the issue, and actually, many of the parents um, in Frisco approve of this. Uh, there hasn't been like, a terrible public outcry in the community. There's been, there's been a, a lot of, uh, sort of national media coverage, Mostly commentators taking pot shots to say, look at these ignorant yahoos in Texas. They don't know what art is. They're so silly. These Bible thumpers have fired this wonderful teacher because they're such yahoos. Um, But within the town, people's attitude is more like, yeah, well, I kind of knew that would happen. They're like, well, that's what happens when you show kids naked pictures. You get fired. Um, So my personal sort of connection to this, why I thought I would have some empathy in this situation Um, I went to high school in Big Fork, Montana, which is a really rural town in a really rural state. And uh, it has a a very high population of evangelical Christians and Mormons. And this um, scenario, while not common, is certainly not implausible. Um, In in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's more or less unthinkable. And in many of the places where I imagine um, most of us come from, one would not... Ever conceive of the idea of a teacher being fired for a museum field trip that involves, like, that statue's sort of genitals? Um, So, I, but I knew a lot of these kids in school, and I knew their parents, and I didn't agree with their, you know, religious prohibitions on viewing the nude body, but they weren't sort of faceless yahoos to me. They weren't ignorant, crazy Bible thumpers. I I liked a lot of these kids. I didn't know them in in fifth grade, but I'm sure if they'd seen naked statues in fifth grade, their parents would have been incensed. And uh, yet, they weren't sort of freak shows to me. They were regular kids, so I kind of liked. So I could feel a little empathy, and I kind of had a sense for how my community would have, Big Fork, Montana, would have reacted to this scandal. Um, So I figured that what I would do is just sort of Think about this Frisco situation in the context of Big Fork. What would I say to the Mormon families I knew and the evangelical Christian families I knew and the people who I knew who would be offended by this sort of thing? Um, So I thought it was a good chance to sort of draw on my past uh, for that. Um, So how the project came to be what it is. I had originally planned to do sort of a basic, like, podcast. Like, well, I'll write an essay about this. I'll read a few installments in the computer and this side, that side, and... That'll be it. And I, I asked Professor Nessen about that. And he said, uh, you know what I'd really like? Yeah,
0: no, no, no. Hold off. All right, well. All right. <laughs> Let's get there.
12: Okay. So, <clears throat> a satirical cartoon of South Park is the answer to the, or is the punchline to that. Anyway, so, what, what I'd really like help with is making the empathic arguments in this I have to say it because it's the context. In this cartoon script that is my project, um, it's sort of a script on a wiki and anyone can participate. Right now it's just sort of, there's an outline up here just summarizing things because you don't really have time to read everything in, in class. Um, but I identified, um, from my experience, what would be sort of, oh, the uh, the wiki where everything is on. Oh, obviously you can see it. Um identified sort of three groups that would really be behind this firing or would be participants in it, parties to it. And those would be, first, the concerned parents who were upset and outraged that their kids saw these statues. Um, they're really the driving force. And then the second group are an even larger group of parents who were sympathetic slash apathetic. So what I mean by that are they parents who either are saying... Um, well, these are these people's religious values. We should be tolerant of it. The school should have respected their values, so I'll support the firing of Ms. McGee. But I think the largest group of parents are just... Their basic attitude is, we can't beat the evangelicals on every issue. It's exhausting. They're too well organized. They're too influential. I'm not going to go to the mat for Ms. McGee on this one. Um, that, That attitude was around a lot in my high school. And finally, the school administration, because the initial impression is that they threw Ms. McGee under the bus to appease the evangelicals and and um, avoid trouble with them, avoid the pickets and the, the protests. Um, but maybe they have something more substantive to say. So those are the three parties where I really needed to empathize with them because I wanted to call them, you know, Yahoo's, um, uh, uh, Disinterested, sort of—I I don't know what—mean people, apathetic people, people who should be standing up and aren't, and um, a school administration that just crumbled in the face of some threats by by some powerful religious parents. So, these are the three groups, and these are sort of summaries of feeling from their perspective. Um, some questions for them to answer, and from their perspective, how they would
0: answer them. So what kind of help can you imagine getting from this crowd?
12: (laughs) Well, um, so I know it might be a farther stretch for some than for others, but uh, the first and the most key one, I think, is getting in the mind of the concerned parents. It's hard for me to conceive of ever wanting to have a teacher fired because my kid saw this or even that or even the other Indian statue with the bosoms. I can't i can't make i, I, I can 't think that I would ever be upset that my kid saw that, but there are people who are legitimately upset there are people who whether it 's justified or not, whether what they're doing is right or wrong, this is how they feel, and they feel very strongly um, so getting into their heads is really the first step, and so that's that 's the hard part um, I guess to say a word about my background, and other you know, people have similar ones or whatever but um
0: I right, see what go you, you've ahead. stated. It. Let's right. see what people have to say. Diane, let's go. Here.
9: I think as a parent, my major concern would be that I don't have any control over what my child is, is viewing. And so as a teacher, to take my child to see nudity before I have a chance to explain these things and for them to be subjected to all these images... Um, I just don't think that that's your role as a teacher. I think it's my role as a parent, and you took that away from me.
13: Uh, This isn't in direct response to your question, but uh, one of the things when you were talking about the three groups. can you hold
0: off for a second? Let's just stay with with Diane. Um, Pass back to Diane. So, all right, she states a position and seems like a... Reasonable position? Um, Well, in the sense,
12: first to bolster that position, for parents with really devout Christian values, it's even more nerve-wracking to send your children to public school because you don't have that control. You feel like you're a marginalized minority, and you're constantly, your kid's being bombarded with things that are counter to your values. So it's even more, um, it's it's an even more raw nerve. But the, the pushback on it is, why do you need to fire her for this? It, it It seems disproportionate you You can be mad at her, you can ask for her to be rebuked, you can want to you know change something, but to you know it's twenty seven years and you're sort of tossing her out because you didn't get to explain nude images to your kid it's
9: I would think it just would make me question her judgment and her character I, I don't believe this, but I think no, as sorry. a parent, I would say we need to get rid of her because. If this is how she chooses to act in this situation, she may do this in other situations. So it's a problem with her as a, as a teacher. Like she's not fit to be a teacher, basically.
0: Plus, you might like to make an example of her. Yeah. To deter the other teachers who might. All right. Pass down to Aaron.
13: Well, I guess this is kind of just a broader question, but you talked about your three groups that you were looking at, and uh, one group that I noticed you didn't mention was the kids themselves. And, you know, of course, it's hard to get inside the mind of, you know, however old these kids were, but, you know, at some level, this is all about them. And so I was just wondering what you were thinking about, you know, their role in this, what, you know, what might or might not be going on
12: inside their heads. Um, So as far as the kids go, uh, this being a, a South Park cartoon is basically what this will resolve itself into, though I'm not an animator, and, so it will remain a script. Um, and I'm not a script writer, so it will remain an amateurish script. Um, the kids play the role of the people arguing to the concerned parents, to making the empathic arguments, because you're right, it is about the kids. And what the kids know is that they love Miss McGee. Even the ones who, like, saw the naughty statues, they all love Miss McGee. They want to learn art from her. She's a great art teacher. She's, you know, an award-winning art teacher and one of the best in Texas. So from the kids' perspective, it's just upsetting. We went on this field trip. We come back to school. She's gone. You took her away from us. the one teacher that we liked. And, and, well, she did some, I don't know what, we went to a museum, and now she's gone. And so for the kids, it's just an experience of sort of being, like, confused, upset, and And sort of bewildered, and that becomes the empathic argument to the concerned parents coming from the kids, which is like we know you 're upset, we know we shouldn't have done that, but like just give us miss McGee back we 'll work it we'll do something else, maybe she made a mistake, but we just we want her back was my impression
0: so that sounds pretty good to me, Josh, just as a start that is. For you to be making the argument by, in some way, putting it in the mouths of the kids.
12: I, I can't take credit for that. That's South Park's uh, sort of ouvre. Yeah, uh-huh,
0: yeah. Uh-huh. Well, that's good.
11: Yeah. To what extent can you side with the other parents, the parents that think this was fine? I mean, are there? H- How is it? How is the decision going to be made that she gets that she gets fired? And so, and can you you know can you sort of? Sure.
12: Sure. Um, so. Um, the, the two things I'm hearing are, first, that, that middle group of parents who just kind of went along with it, like who weren't super upset, but who were like, you know, Miss McGee's on, she's going out, and that's kind of how it has to be. Um, so the, the first one, the argument I think is thinner on their side, is these evangelical Christians and, 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 and Mormons and whoever else was, was upset, they are kind of a, an embattled minority in our school. They don't share our mainstream morality, and every time they come to school, these kids are getting bombarded with messages that are contrary to what they're learning at home. And so they want to stand up on this one issue and say, look, just respect our morals here. Just give us some notice. And, and, and so they're just trying to sort of stand up for their values, and we should support them in doing that. I have the, the Broflovskis for those of you who aren't at South Park, the Broflovskis are the Jewish family in South Park, making that argument because their feeling is, we're the only jews in town we want kosher meals and we want hanukkah songs at the christmas pageant and if other people don't support us when we stand up to get those things we're not going to get them and people are going to say well it doesn't matter to me because it's a jewish concern so what do i care so on uh by the same token we can't tell them well it's just an evangelical christian concern that's just you're such a small minority you don't count I think it's a thin argument because it doesn't address proportionality. It doesn't say, well, why do you have to fire her? You wouldn't fire someone for forgetting to put in a Hanukkah song in the Christmas pageant. You wouldn't fire her for one thing. Um, but I think the more frequent argument, the more likely argument, is the evangelicals are really well organized and they're really numerous and they're really loud and they're really energetic. We can't win every time. Every time they want to do something to the school, or we, we, we can't beat them on everything. So... We pick our battles. And in this case, you know, you can't show kids naked artwork. She really shouldn't have done that. She put, her head on the own cho- she put her own head on the chopping block on this one. And it's not like they're trying to stop teaching evolution in school or stop teaching art in school. If it were a major policy that would, like, change my kid's education, then I'd get upset. But, like, my kid's still going to learn art. Um, they're not bringing God into the classroom. So... On balance, I'm going to sort of save my energy for some time when I really am willing to tangle with uh, these crazy, numerous evangelicals.
0: So anyone got any help for Josh? Nathan.
12: Oh, I didn't address about the decision-making, but I can come back to
1: it. Um, I have a question. Were the, the parents concerned that they didn't know that this was a possibility when they went, or that it just happened at all?
12: Yeah, most of the... I mean, their, their, two concern, their major concern is notice. If, if someone had just sent them a notice saying, there's naked artwork at this museum, it's not on the tour route, but the kids might see it, then they would have been fine. Though then your question is, how much notice of everything do you need? I mean, do you need to rate museums by PG, R, PG-13? So the parents claim it's notice just let us take our kids out of these activities, though that becomes kind of an unworkable mechanism. But they're also really mad that it happened behind their back. Like, no one consulted them. It's just they're walking through a museum. Suddenly my kid is seeing stone boobs. I'm angry. I don't like him seeing boobs. And so there's that, you know, their, their administrative argument is notice. And then their, like, more core argument is don't show my kid nude stuff. So, so but
1: but notice about going to the museum at all, or I mean, I, yeah, about about a museum what's, that
12: doesn't have artwork like exactly. That's um, you know, the, so their claim is tell us that there's nude art in the museum, and sort of the school can tell you that there's nude art in every museum. So it has to be more than than notice. It has to be these kids actually saw these things, even if they weren't supposed to.
0: So, what's your thought, Andy?
1: I'm, I'm having the same problem uh, that Josh is having about the the empathy here. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of like you know saying you can't can't go do anything in public, really. Um, you know, you it's, it's yeah. trying to be so insular in order to protect. Um,
12: I mean, there uh, is knowing knowing these parents and their kids. There is a good chance that they would just say, "My kid's not going on museum field trips." Just tell me there's a museum field trip and my kid's not, or an art museum field trip and my kid's not going. It's not, it's wildly implausible for me to think that way, for anyone in Cambridge to think that way. But, I mean, I'm aware of, it's, it could happen.
4: So don't people have to get permission slips anyway? I mean, is there really no notice?
12: Yeah, I mean, like, so the permission slip issue goes back and forth on the message boards. People get pretty persnickety about this. I guess like they were supposed to get a permission slip and they didn't. But even if they did, the permission slip wouldn't have said there are naked statues in the museum. So it wouldn't have been like real notice that, that there's nudity in this museum. So the parents kind of feel like they still feel misinformed or uninformed, regardless of who actually may have signed what permission at what point, um, they're upset. Um, I
1: guess I'm wondering how closely you're going to follow the South Park format because it doesn't seem very empathic to me. Like South Park is very oppositional, and if you showed the South Park cartoon to whoever it's poking fun at, be it uh, Tom Cruise or whoever else, like I don't think it's going to bring them over to your side or or make you seem very. It's, I don't know. How, how are you going to deal with that, I guess, is
12: my question. It's true. That was a really hard part. That was, that was a real concern because a lot of the belly laughs from South Park just come from skewering these absurd yahoos. Um, but South Park does sometimes do a good job of laying things out in an empathic way. Um, its touchstone is not empathy. So I'm taking some liberties with the South Park formula and um, it probably, I mean, probably, it's not as funny as the South Park. Like, if you turn on Comedy Central, you'd have a lot more laughs. But the, the, the sections where sort of Stan or Kyle or one of the parents would actually say something in a solemn fashion, and there'd be, like, some, some solemn music behind them, and, and they would actually explain the message of the cartoon, those sections are beefed up. And um, the sections of the cartoon where, like, Mel Gibson would chase the kids around his mansion naked are toned down because it's not really in the cause of empathy.
0: But, Dean, let let me uh, ask you a question. Uh, If you take the uh, battle, the final battle in Eminem's Eight Mile as a form of empathic argument, you can see that empathic argument is not always designed to persuade the other person that's opposite you. What, what Eminem does there is he persuades the audience. So it's, it's like a situation in which there's a judge. But the way he approaches it empathically is he takes the other side's argument away by stating it. And I hear Josh largely doing that. That is, he is he he's he he's speaking in a way that people could say, "Yes, I I can see where they're coming from." Once you've got them, once you've got that, then that's a base that you can work from. At that point, Eminem goes and just slashes and burns. You go to a private school and you come from a rich family and you're a fake and all this kind of stuff. But at that point, he's, he's got it. And it's, it's not dissimilar to a courtroom situation in which you show you really understand the problem to start with, but then you come in with your argument and your argument's powerful. And so you can draw the people along without them having the out of saying, well, they really don't understand the other side. That's the same thing that goes on constantly with direct examination and cross-examination. You put the witness on the stand, and you want to examine the witness in such a way that you take away the other side's cross. That doesn't mean that you have the witness agree with the other side, but you take away all the stuff that would be used to pull the rug out from under your witness first, and then you build from there. So I I don't want the idea of empathic argument to take on too much of a sappy character. It can be definitely a a go-for-the-win kind of argument. But I would very much like to emphasize it's a way of having the person who's judging, if it's an outsider, a third person, say... This person really understands the argument they haven't missed something it's when 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 the other person stands up to argue you're not going to have the reaction oh that's a good point i haven't heard before you've heard it before aaron uh yeah i'm
13: just uh, wondering kind of like what you're i guess trying to clear up what your opinion is on like how bad or not bad what she did is. I mean, I know that, you know, the, the Bible thumpers are not the mainstream opinion on this. I, th- I think probably Cambridge is not the mainstream opinion on this either. And uh, I'm just wondering, you think, you know, is it, you know, bad, f- you know, a little bad? And that, you know, she made a decision that could offend people. Is it, you know, kind of bad for kids to see these things, but not as bad as the evangelicals
12: say? Like, where, like, how Bad or not bad, do you really think what she did is? So, like, my personal opinion or the opinion expressed sort of in the the project slash script? I mean, because they're the same, but my opinion is more partisan. All right, well, your opinion, because I guess that's
13: what you're ultimately
12: arguing for, right? Well, so what I'm ultimately arguing for is don't fire Miss McGee. Like, it's a kind of a result. Um, My personal opinion is don't fire any teacher for taking kids to a museum ever for God's sake, it's a museum. That's just that's just my personal opinion, not not a sort of professional or thought-out opinion, not necessarily a lawyerly one, but that's just how I feel. Um,
0: your, opinion, God, your God's sake.
12: Yes, my God <laughs> says, don't fire people for uh, taking them to museums. The, the opinion in the project is you might think this is bad. Um, you might think she made a mistake, whether it was a mistake of notice or a mistake of... of not monitoring the kids closely enough, or taking them to a situation where they might see nudity, you might think it 's a mistake it 's just not bad enough to fire her it, you know if, if if you reinstate her, you can sanction her some other way or not. We can argue about what she did, but it 's not bad enough to merit ending her career uh, if If you were the principal, would you sanction her so if, me personally or the, yeah no, I mean I would say. Yeah, some of the crazy parents complain. Can you please just make sure that you're really careful about what kids get to see, what statues of what gods having sex? Um, but I wouldn't. You know, they they put her on this like career development program, which is the "we're about to fire you" program. Like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put her on that.
14: It seems like in terms of the empathic argument you might have a starting point with concerned parents who are involved in their kids education and you can be concerned because this one incident happened that could happen with a new teacher that comes in with zero years experience and it um and it could happen if you've got the empathic um just zoned out for a second (laughs) if you're um if you're arguing that it could happen with a teacher comes in with zero years' experience, and if you're arguing, if you have parents who are concerned about their child's education, you're probably thinking the teacher with 27 years' experience is somebody who can bring something more to the children than somebody with zero years' experience. What you're forfeiting is something that you're actually concerned about. So you appeal to their same level of, of concernedness. You know, they're, they're more concerned than the average parent. They're more involved than the average parent. They want to have more to say than the average parent. So in this case, yes, it was a mistake. You know, yes, it was unfortunate that it happened. And yes, it it exposed your child to something you didn't want your child to be exposed to. But um, to what degree are you sacrificing something that you want for your child in in their education with their award-winning art teacher or whatever?
12: I absolutely agree. I mean... And I think the kids recognize that, too. I mean, parents recognize it. Everyone recognizes she's someone special. And, and anyone can show a kid a naked statue, but not anyone can teach like she can.
14: Right. And to that degree, I mean, in that sense, what I meant was that you can start with the empathic form of you guys are the concerned right. parents. You guys right. are the ones who, re- ones who really want to be involved with your kids. So I think one
4: of the big strengths of the argument that you've been making so far is the community-based aspect of it, where it doesn't really make any difference what your opinion is or what anybody in Cambridge's opinion is. And, I mean, basically that's the reason why somebody lives in Big Fork in the first place. They go there so that they could have their community where it actually reflects some of their ideas about how their culture should be and what the schools should be. and It's already a stretch for them to put their kids in the public schools to begin with. The least they could ask is that it just gets limited to reading and writing and not transmitting all this other stuff that they don't want transmitted. Um, so the South Park thing, again, seems like you, it's, you put this community issue on a national stage in a way that basically gives people the impression that it's okay for the rest of us to have a say in how these kids are educated. And as a parent of one of those kids, I would feel like, hey, I don't care what you think and I don't want you to have a say. That's why I pay the taxes in this town.
6: Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to sort of go back to something we were sort of talking about a second ago, which is sort of, you know, who are you trying, this idea of empathy and then creating this sort of empathic argument and who are you arguing to? And Maybe this isn't necessarily the most interesting approach, but it seems to me that your target isn't necessarily sort of um, the evangelicals, because you kind of figure you're not going to be able to persuade them. But it would seem to me that the people that you really should be trying to address are, you know, the quote unquote apathetic parents that are willing to just sort of go with the flow. And maybe, you know, I think you might want to look at it sort of the way to tailor it in order to that. You know, after someone has sort of read the script, you know, hypothetically seen the episode, is that you want the apathetic parent to now no longer be apathetic and care. Isn't, is that is that the goal then? And so should the argument be one that is empathic to them? I mean, understand what the evangelicals are saying, but really the person that I think you need to empathize with the most, the person you're trying to persuade at least, is the apathetic parent that is, well, yeah, whatever, either or, I don't care, I just don't want to make a big row, right? Or am I
12: not understanding? No, I, I, I absolutely um, thought the same thing and still kind of think the same thing. Um, the, the two responses um, to that one are, are, are first uh, as to the whole decision-making thing, who makes a decision, who needs to be persuaded, because there isn't a judge here. It's not a legal dispute. You don't have a party targeted for your argument. In the in the real world, in the real Sydney I've stylized the facts of the Sydney McGee dispute. In the real world, you know, the the school board and the district make the decision. Parents have no say. No one has any say except the lawyer Sidney McGee hired is trying to get it in court on some, you know, some theory or another. Um so in real life, the decision maker is more or less insulated from popular sentiment saying bring Miss McGee back. They they do what they want. Um but then So the reason that I tailored the project to address the evangelical parents and just try to convince them to be okay with her not being fired um, is because I actually felt, effectiveness-wise, I felt some ambivalence about empathic argument to the apathetic parents because my feeling was they're 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 a majority of the parents. Getting them whipped up and rallying the base... If they had the voting power to vote her back in, then the way to do that might not be to make the evangelicals' argument in a really convincing way. It might be to do, you know, what political people do when they rally the base. It might be to blow the trumpets, raise the banner of, are you going to let these fundamentalists hijack our school system? You know, I mean, the kind of rhetoric that you might employ to get apathetic parents engaged and angry enough to actually get out there and make a difference might not be the language of um, empathy, whereas if you're trying to convince the evangelicals to just drop their feud down to the point where the school can get by without firing her and other parents will be okay with that, you have to speak the language of empathy. So I just thought in terms of tailoring the project to be able to make an empathic argument, um, the, the conservative parents were a better stage but I completely agree that if if you want to just raise public outcry um, and get, you know, the force on your side, then it might just be better to sort of bang the drums and
0: rally the disinterested parents. Josh, thank you very much. Hope it's, hope it's helpful. We're, we're just about at the end of the hour. Uh, and I wanted... Sorry? Exactly. I wanted to... Uh, ask who wants to present tomorrow, and we have uh, three minutes left to sit in silence.
1: It's
12: not that bad. Thank you, guys. By the way, thank you. Y'all were really nice. So, who's
0: who's who's interested for tomorrow? All right, well, if we're desperate, Allison, we'll come to you. (laughs) Come, come, come. Only two minutes left.
4: (laughs) I don't think that's quite fair to Allison. We aren't expecting that your projects are done at this point, so it's okay for your presentation to be with the project in progress. In fact, we didn't really look at any... Thing that josh put together it's really about the idea and the ideas are so interesting that you guys are doing for these projects so um, i think we should accept allison's offer and also encourage people who aren't done to step forward
0: allison we accept josh
12: The outline there is on a wiki, and the final script will be on a wiki because I'm just encouraging participation because I'm not, it turns out, a professional comedy writer or cartoonist. So if anyone reads it and they think, this isn't funny, South Park should be funny, then you can write something funnier and plug it right in, or you can discuss it, or, like, you can tell me my arguments are bad. So it's like a participatory thing.
2: So
0: I need
12: some company. uh,
0: Hang on
2: website or our course? Uh, it's
12: actually not because I kind of didn't want people to stumble on it and be like oh this is random and weird but um, I, can, I can link it to the course website. Or I'll just link it to something. Some
3: access it. Yeah. So
12: that we can contribute. I'll, 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 um, I'll put up the, the rough draft of the thing and link it to the course website and have at her. That's right there. Do we have a
0: volunteer?
7: Yes. I will be happy to
5: go tomorrow. We have another volunteer. Three would be just about ready. We got one. Sure, I
0: accept. All right. <laughs> we got another one, John. Um, I'll talk about my project tomorrow, yeah. All right, I don't know how set. So it's
8: going to be your All I'm right, of course, it. perfect. Thank you all. Class <laughs> is